Welcome to Nesta's Future Curious Podcast with me, Nigel Campbell. We'll be stimulating the parts other podcasts can't reach with ideas, provocations and glimpses into our shared future. Well, there was a time when artificial intelligence was a strange and futuristic concept, but the next thing is already upon us. Collective intelligence. How can we mobilise human and machine intelligence for the benefit of society? And what can we achieve when we combine the collective intelligence of crowds with AI? Joining me to talk about this is Eva Grobink, uh, who's researcher at Nesta's Centre for Collective Intelligence Design. Also with us is Professor Chris Lintott, Professor of Astrophysics and Citizen Science Lead at the University of Oxford, and Gregory Landua, who is the CEO of Regen Network in the US, uh, which uses observational technologies to benefit the natural world. Welcome, all of you. So, um, Eva, let's start with you. Let's start by understanding, I guess, all of us, what collective intelligence actually is. What's the difference between just a load of people doing some group thinking and collective intelligence. Can we define that maybe to start with? Yeah, so I guess there are many different approaches to collective intelligence and many different understandings of what collective intelligence is because it's a really scattered field. Um, but just as in group thinking, I think the word collective refers to a group of humans. So that can be any sort of crowd, for example, students in the classroom, people in the company or organization or citizens in the city. Um, so that's the meaning of the collective. But what distinguishes collective intelligence from group thinking is that collective intelligence uses technology, can be a platform, AI, anything like that, to enhance, facilitate or complement human knowledge um, so that it enables smarter outcomes. So it's basically about combining human and machine intelligence. So the collective thing is not just about people together, but it combined with some form of technology. Are we all agreed to that or are there lots of different opinions on what uh, collective intelligence actually means? It's interesting, isn't it? You hear that definition and it's hard to think for a second of anything that isn't collective intelligence. Mm. I suppose me on my own uh, in a dark room wouldn't count. But even then, I'm influenced by the technology I use and everyone else. But I, I think we narrow it to the, this sort of intriguing ways of combining human and machine intelligence or human and machine capabilities. And I think you you, be, you begin to, to get a good idea. Um, I was just thinking I'm an astronomer. Uh, I was thinking my colleagues who landed a probe on Mars a couple of uh, weeks ago. Uh, and they're now living on Mars time. So Mars uh, has a day that's 24 and a half hours long. And they're doing that because the machine works during the day, this little probe called InSight, and then it goes to sleep and the humans take over and they look at all the data it sent back and they plan its next day and send it back. So you sort of have distributed collective intelligence across the solar system there, a collaboration between human and machine. And even though the collaboration is pretty simple, they send commands, it carries them out. It's, that combination is achieving things that, that neither could do on their own. Wow. I, I, I remember... Um I, must have been 10 or more years ago, there was that fad of, oh, you know, you can use the downtime on your computer so yeah, everyone pulls it together People on the internet and, yeah, and yeah, think exactly. some answer to some very complex question. Is is that an example of it as well? Or is or is that not? Because it doesn't involve humans. So these are distributed screensavers. So the famous one is SETI at home, where people are using their computers to look for aliens right. uh, and haven't yet found any. But I don't know. Eva, Eva what, what do you think? Do you think that's, that's more distributed computer intelligence? Right. You I need to add the people so. in. Yeah, I think that that's exactly the difference between 
like, you know, using just technology and collective intelligence because it's really essential that humans are involved. And I mean, normally, as Chris said, it's like a crowd involved, but as long as it combines the human element and technological element, I would say it's collective intelligence. If I could just sort of uh, offer a, a, I don't know, sort of a, a friendly alternative opinion, it would be sort of... <laughs> You're allowed to disagree. It's fine. Yeah, it, it would be, it would be so, sort of twofold. One is, I think, introducing sort of a mental model of a continuum. So, for instance, SETI at home, there were humans involved in, for instance, designing the algorithm and the distributed compute system that is, that is leveraging this whole network of personal computers in order to do image recognition. So, so it's... It's sort of like on a continuum, there's a startup phase where humans are deeply engaged with setting sort of the ground rules and the computational rules. And then we're leveraging machine intelligence in order to provide a search. So that's sort of just sort of throwing that into the ring as, as perhaps a tool for thinking about this. And then the other thing I'd like to offer is, at least from our perspective at Regen Network, we sort of, there's a, a living ecosystem intelligence as well that I, I think um, sort of perhaps provides a third line in this sort of convergence around what we're exploring here. And in essence, you might think of the observation network that we're building at Region Network as a way to translate and understand a, a, another language, another living intelligence system on the planet in order to sort of retune. And so although maybe that complexifies the conversation a little bit too much, my hope is that that's uh, a useful provocation. Well, we like complex com- conversations here on the Nesta podcast. I, I, so I mean, right. I, I'd like to hear more about it. I don't understand yeah. what I'm a physicist, right? I'm an astronomer by branding, but a physicist by training. So I'm not sure I know what you mean by an ecosystem intelligence. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the Gaia hypothesis, for instance. Um, I'm not. So the, this is the idea that sort of the planet as a whole with everything living on it is a system that responds to inputs and, and adjusts yeah. itself. Essentially a super organism that, that creates its own homeostasis, right? So um, as... You mean it maintains its state, right? That's right. That maintains state with input from solar energy. So... Uh, within that system, you can think of all of these information flows, whether they're genetic DNA or um, even sort of when you start to think of the system flows of energy and um, in, in solar energy, wind energy moving across the system, there are patterns, right? And if you start to unpack those patterns, they actually start to look remarkably similar to to language and of course you can mathematically model them and so there's this connection with the you know in quotes objective um, physics and mathematics that can describe the system and so I think there's an interesting case to be made at least sort of hypothetical as a as a as a provocation to explore that there there's sort of a, a living and dynamic language that expresses itself through ecosystems on the planet. So it sounds like to me, and I'm a total layman with this then, that this is about making sense of extremely complex patterns. Am I right in thinking that? Or is there, are there other types of questions that we can answer through collective intelligence? Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily about really complex questions. Like some of the collective intelligence examples that exist in projects are actually quite simple. Um, it can 
basically, I mean, I think this conversation really interestingly shows that there are many different conceptualizations of that word, of the term, like everybody thinks it's some something different in a sense. But as I said, I think some problems that are basically, the problems that are addressed are complex, but the way they are addressed with the collective intelligence don't necessarily need to be super complex and difficult. I think they're like really different levels of complexity um, of the collective intelligence systems that we're talking about. I, I think the trouble is that it's very seductive to start thinking about complex systems and, and using a language that comes out of uh, talking about complexity because as soon as you say that one is attacking a complex problem with a complex idea then of course you're immediately extremely intelligent uh, and you know I'm an academic I'm used to saying things and, and hoping that people find me extremely intelligent so let me give you a let's 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 have a concrete example if yes, we can about a very because I don't know how to solve complex problems what I've spent years trying to work out is how to solve simple problems in the simplest way in fact uh, in the group I run called the Zooniverse which I'll talk about in a second there, there was a mantra uh, which is to try to do the simplest thing that works because then we've got some hope of trying to understand it so one of the things that um, I'm interested in as an astronomer is understanding how fast the universe is expanding, which is a fairly simple question. It's just a measurement of a speed. And we measure it by looking at these exploding stars called supernovae. Uh, and so you need to find a supernova. And these things, um, when they go bang, they a single star can outshine the other 100 billion stars in the galaxy. But you have to be cat catch it at exactly the right moment. And so we have telescopes that scan the sky and they look at galaxy after galaxy after galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. And we need to see whether there's anything new in each of those images compared to the last time we visited. Now, that's something uh, that you could take a SETI at home approach with. You could write an algorithm. You could get your intelligent postdoc or PhD student to write an algorithm and spend their career trying to work out how best to do that. And people have, have done that. But in 2014, um, a very bright nearby supernova went off in a galaxy called M82. It's a galaxy just in the little um, constellation of the Plough, which maybe people know about. And the people who spotted that were a bunch of undergrads at Mill Hill Observatory, about uh, three or four miles north of here, right next to one of the main roads in London. And they spotted it because they and the, the guy looking after them, a guy called Steve Fossey, knew that galaxy so well that they could say there's something new here. They're actually in the middle of getting pizza when one of them noticed this image. So there's human intelligence. But it became apparent that lots of people had seen the supernova in the few days leading up to the discovery. Uh, lots of amateur astronomers had seen it and lots of professional observatories had seen it. But the algorithms had rejected it because it was too bright. It seemed unusually so. And so it was deemed an outlier and, and not classified. So what we've done at Zooniverse is build a system that combines human and machine classification of supernovae. And the distribution is really easy. If you allow them this, this combination to adjust, you give the machines the things that they're good at, and you give the humans the things they're good at, what you find is that the machines take on the bulk of the work. Most galaxy images don't show any difference from night, night to night. So most of the time, the machines can pick up the slack. But because you've got the machines doing that, the humans are then free to concentrate on the unusual stuff where you need human intuition and the ability to think outside the box. And so the humans come in and do that. What that means is that when you train your machine, you can pay more attention to the normal stuff. A lot of the difficult stuff in modern machine learning is learning the edge cases, the unusual versions. If you know that humans are going to sort that out, your machines become cleverer at doing the routine. 
and you get this back and forth between the two. So we've spent a few years building that system. It's now deployed. We get live data once a week uh, from California. We get a week's worth of galaxies, and within a few minutes, people and machines have gone through them, and we send that the, the details out to telescopes around the world to follow up. So that's a really simple problem. It's just, has anything changed in this picture? It's a really simple solution. We're using what these days is fairly normal off-the-shelf machine learning, and we're asking people the question, have you seen anything change? So there's nothing complex in that system, as you count the expanding universe, but that's a, that's a different story. There's nothing complex there, and yet we're doing real science that we couldn't do unless we have a combination of human machine, a collective intelligence at work in the middle there. Great. Well, that, I mean, that's a really clear example. I, I, can we bring forward any other examples that are perhaps a little bit uh, different to that? Because I think that's a, a lovely way of crystallizing what you might call hunch plus crunch. Hunch plus crunch is, is also my favorite sandwich bar in Soho. Uh, yeah. So that's nice. You know, crunch the numbers and, and then mob in a bit of human hunch and there you I go. think that that's an excellent example. And I think there there's a really interesting relationship between um, the sort of simple and complex from my perspective, where I, I mean, I think we're building very similar tooling and applying it to um, ecosystems. So, you know, you don't want machines to just be crunching everything all the time without the ability for that sort of, yeah, cr creative, intuitive, as, as, as Chris was speaking about, um, the human input is essential. And so in our case, you know, um, sort of by combining ground truth information about ecological health with satellite information, we, we can create sort of a, a model that helps us understand ecological health, but it ultimately it needs, you need human input. And so we've been thinking a lot about designing something very similar to the, to the Zooniverse system where people can classify sort of different land use typologies. Um, there's also another layer for us where there's the need for um, input from the ground to correlate sort of there's need for multiple different types of observations. So in that very simple example, we have sort of um, just telescope imagery of the universe, right? And multi-spectrum, but telescope in imagery of the universe. And in our case, we have both sort of uh, imagery coming from remote sensing, coming from satellites, but also we need to be able to correlate that from thing from on the ground observations, whether those are tests of soil health that, um, you know, are sort of taken the old fashioned way, dig a hole and take it to the lab or smartphone photos or IOT information. There's sort of, or simply a farmer entering observations into a data system that correlates it, there's the need for sort of these multiple lines of information to converge together into a single model. And then really at the end of the day, that model needs to be checked in a very similar way where you can sort of run it and people can engage and say sort of, yep, yep, yep. Oh, that's abnormal. And, um, yeah, so a little bit, a little bit, there's another layer of complexity with multiple, sort of data sources coming in, but I think the same pattern holds. Right. And, and what's what's the output? What what does it actually come out with then, Gregory, for for the Regen Network? It, it, we, we described it as uh, uh, benefiting the natural world. Uh, what are all of those um, complex sources of input plus human intuition and interpretation add up to then? Well, I think at this stage of the game, what people are most interested is understanding 
sort of greenhouse gas balance. And so landscapes can either, um, through photosynthesis and appropriate management or just sort of leaving things alone as, as sort of like a wild forest, can achieve carbon sequestration, or that is drawing down more carbon out of the atmosphere and leaving it in soils and above ground biomass than it emits every year, right? Or if you're sort of practicing a degenerative land use pattern, like you're tilling the land every year, that actually, you know, the soil is is flipped over, the soil oxidizes and it releases carbon into the atmosphere and actually accumulates more atmospheric carbon. And so there's sort of, a again, a continuum between degenerative and regenerative land use. And the ability to monitor that helps us be able to make better decisions. It helps us be able to do things like incentivize particular types of land use that build the common good of a balanced climate. So, so the good news is, so I meant to say you can use our platform, so it's open. So if you go to zooniverse.org slash lab, Gregory, you could build your own tool. You can build your thing on our tools. So we've saved you a problem. But um, what I wanted to ask was, I think you're you're tackling a, a more difficult problem than I am because I have a bunch of people. We've got about one and a half million volunteers around the world who sign up to our projects because they want to participate in science. They want to be part of this great adventure, but they can be anywhere in the world. And the same is true when we've we've done stuff with satellite imagery. Uh, in particular, my colleague Brooke Simmons runs something called the Planetary Response Network, where we've uh, analysed satellite images after disasters like the Caribbean hurricanes to look at um, places where first responders need to be or, or maybe where roads are blocked. Um, and there people participate all over the world because that human desire to help is really, really strong. Um, but you're taking it. So you've got that, too, because people want to help. The, the planet, but you, it sounds like you need people in particular places to help because you need somebody there to dig your hole or to put out your internet things, etc. And and that always seems to me to be a much more difficult problem. So so how both and both and I think it's enormously useful. I'd be very excited to to build something on your platform. It's very generous, and I we're also big believers in sort of open tooling. So it's it's really exciting to think about community in that way. Um, we also need people to to identify different land use types, right? And yeah, yeah, create yeah. classification systems. So there's a way in which both we want to engage sort of a citizen science revolution with on the ground information, but also we need people to just engage with image recognition. Yeah, but how, how do you get people on the ground to give up their time to, to go somewhere or go, I, you know, I, 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 as, as is obvious, I get distracted by things that aren't just astronomy. And I, I gave a talk to the Mammal Society here in London a few months ago. And the Mammal Society are great people. I highly recommend them. And they're responsible for studying British mammals. And their big problem was that they've got Got this brilliant program in which they'll lend people kit to go out into the woods uh, and and monitor what's there. But they need people because it's a scientific survey. You need people every few hundred or a few kilometers in a nice grid to go and spend half an hour listening. And what they found instead well, was that their volunteers went for nice walks. And right. they tended to go to the, the same places, right? Because right. that's where people want to go. They didn't want to be in the middle of the dead ones. They want to be on top of the hill looking at the loch. Oh, those pesky humans. I know, exactly. So this is my point with collective intelligence. You have to accept uh, that humans are human, I suppose, even online, uh, where we've had, we have a project called Snapshot Serengeti, where you look at camera trap photos from the Serengeti where animals have walked in front of the camera and the camera will take a picture and we need to know what animals are there. Well, machines can get rid of the many, many photos that are taken by accident. 
where there are no animals because the grass is waving or the cameras malfunction. But it turns out that greatly decreased people's enjoyment of the project because seeing nothing and then nothing and then nothing and then a zebra is much more exciting than a zebra and a zebra. So once people come in, what I'm getting at is once people come into the system, uh, your ability to design a system drops uh, rather wonderfully. And I, 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 you must have found the same. Well, so that's a really, if I, if I could speak to that really quickly, that's where I think the conversation about collective intelligence gets really interesting, which is how do you move beyond what people will casually engage with to the next layer of depth that really things start to get interesting. And that's where, you know, in brief, and we could spend a whole, we could spend hours and I don't necessarily have answers, just different questions maybe. (laughs) Um, That's where we start to think about incentives for, for participation. And where can you align? For instance, we're really big fans of aligning farmer data collection with this sort of like collective good of this information coming to bear so that they're actually receiving insights by sharing data that they need to collect anyway as part of having a good farm operation for instance so there's these different intersections we look for we also sort of you know perhaps are one of the options is exploring monetary incentives for data collection so essentially you professionalize roles So it moves beyond just a volunteer network into sort of a professional, you know, science network, essentially. Well, this is getting into really interesting territory about how you design these systems, I guess. And this is, I suppose, when the the, the intelligence, uh, the collective intelligence design center at Nesta has, has, has been looking at some of these things. It sounds like there are a gazillion different ways of going about skinning this particular cat, depending on, on, on what you want to, what you want to solve. Eva. I mean, it, there are all kinds of different ways of approaching this, I guess, then. Yeah, I, th- I just wanted to quickly mention, because I found it really interesting what Chris and Gregory just said in their examples, because I think they mentioned two key like potentials of collective intelligence so one was what chris said in the beginning like that the capabilities of a human machine differ so like machines are really good in certain things and humans are really good in certain things and i think that it's really important that we recognize the areas where either can do a better job than the other um to really make the best out of this and the other one example i think um gregory mentioned that is the use of novel data sources so um you know, using different, he mentioned satellite imagery or on the ground, you know, data like IoT sensors and things like that. But I think it also is about new data sources from from citizens, from people, from not like normal human beings. Um, there's a really interesting example um, in Indonesia, for example, where it's a platform called Peta Benkana. Um, and so they scrap... Um, social media besides Twitter, for example, um, and also people can contribute via messenger channels uh, about information about flooding. So people tweet about certain floods in certain areas of the city um, and this website takes all this information and visualizes it in a map, which is open source, so people can use that. And this is really, really um, interesting because it combines this local knowledge with, you know, government reports about flooding. Um, So uh, it really helps people to make better informed decisions that 
to residents. So how do they react in certain uh, emergency situations? How do they navigate a city when they know there's a flooding somewhere? But also for humanitarian agencies or governments. So I think these two elements of both, um, you know, these new data sources um, and identifying where machines are better than humans and where humans are better than machines are like the two key things where collective intelligence really can make a difference. Indeed. Well, uh, we'll come on to talk about whether these things can influence each other, because I'm quite interested in exploring how the it evolves and changes over time um, in a second. But uh, first of all, um, I spoke earlier on to uh, Christine von Reisfeld, who's um, a patient advocate from Patients Like Me, uh, who has been using uh, collective intelligence uh, in the health field. I couldn't get any information about my disease. There was no online resources. And the doctors spoke to me in medical terms. And my parents didn't understand it. So at 14 years old, I used to take the bus over to Stanford Hospital, which is about an hour away by bus. And I would sit in the medical research library by myself, reading up on TTP and everything that was involved in it, trying to you know, determine as a 14-year-old how this worked and what was happening. This was 1989. Looking for information about diseases now is so simple. And you can get online and there are people everywhere in the world at any time that will sit down and talk with you. I actually got my lupus diagnosis after talking to a lot of people and talking with my doctors. Um, so personally, it was kind of a collaborative issue on um, diagnosing me. So I've been a member of, of patients like me for quite a few years. I just got onto their team of advisors. I started December of last year, and it has been an amazing experience. We There's a group of 13 of us, I think it's 13. <laughs> and we all work together on different projects. And one of the projects that we, we were working on was uh, it was putting together a guide for advocacy, um, not only self-advocacy, but on a level with you know government or pharmaceutical and to tell people how to get into this and what to expect. And, um, you know, and just that shared experience of each of us has come into a, this a different way. And we all have made mistakes. And this way, it's a way for other people to avoid those mistakes in the future. There's a lot of things that I'm trying to change. And so right now I'm working with a congressman on reforming Social Security and um, SSDI, SSI. And in that process, I've contacted a ton of people and nobody wants to speak up. But once we got into this event and I started speaking up was when everybody else started speaking up. Patients Like Me is a different forum from any other online support group I've been in. Uh, with Patients Like Me, there's moderators in the community. There are people on the staff. There are doctors. There are scientists. There's everybody. And they're not letting this information get out there. Um, they talk to patients and they want to know what we as patients want, which is something that doesn't happen very often. And I know the tide is changing now and, and patients are starting to become in charge of their own health care, which still confuses me because I thought we always should have been. <laughs> but I think that patients like me just provides a safe environment. You can go on there anonymously. You can share your story. You can say who you are. It it's up to you on how you want 
to contribute and how much you want to be involved. There are, there's mental health forums, there's disease forums, there's everything you can, can, could think of is going to be on this site. And it's one location where all of us can get together. There's already an established trust. And we know that things that are getting out there aren't false. Um, things are checked out. Uh, it's not like a group on Facebook, say, where it's run by one individual person who maybe pulls in their friends. This is something with real people with real life experiences and people who are in this industry who want to help. So I've spoken to all of my doctors and I found that a lot of my doctors have referred their patients and a lot of them have told me that their patients do get something out of it that they wouldn't get from anywhere else. I think everything about just, you know, the online communities and, and this collaborative effort that everyone wants to make is amazing. Um, you know, when I started out, there weren't very many people who spoke out about their diseases. Um, and there's still not a lot of people that speak about speak out about it. Um, I live in Silicon Valley where there's a lot of people that I know that have chronic illness, but they hide it because they're afraid that they're going to lose their jobs. Um, and so their support is this these online communities and these people that aren't in their everyday lives. Christine there talking about how collective intelligence uh, is being used to further understanding about health conditions. And uh, she mentioned there is some interesting stuff around avoiding mistakes in the future and uh, and learning. Um, and I suppose that's one of the critical, wonderful things that could be a great potential here. Um, it's avoiding uh, the mistakes that us humans are all often make too often and repeat them all over the, again, but also benefiting society. I wanted to have a chat about how we use this new technique to, to benefit society, guys. What, what are your thoughts on that? Eva, I know that you, this is a lot of what kind of Nestor is, is, uh, is driven by, sort of social benefit. Um, we've heard already uh, from Chris and Gregory there around things around environment, uh, things about understanding um, the, uh, the universe around us. Um, what other kinds of social benefit can it, uh, can it be applied to, do you think? Well, it's applied in a lot of fields. For example, it's really big in, in democracy. So um, there are a lot of platforms out there and um, projects that really um, kind of make use of online tools or different kind of sort of technologies to enable people to deliberate and discuss online to help them kind of shape the you know policies of their cities and like kind of have a bigger say in what their cities or even countries should look like. There are really interesting examples from Reykjavik, for example, Paris, um, really um, Taiwan, all over the place. So it's really, really a big thing. So that's, I think, the key one. And then obviously, as Christine just said, in the health field, it's really popular as well. And there are a lot of projects going on there as well. So I think these are, for example, two fields where it's really helpful and can really make a difference to use collective intelligence approaches. But I think the problem with that is that in many of those examples, particularly the political ones, the people who are taking advantage of those platforms to, yes, do things in a different way or a more collective way, are the people who would be engaged in politics anyway, and the people for whom politics is part of their lives and, and something that they see, that people who see themselves as political actors. I think the challenge with all of this stuff is to, to get people over that threshold into a place where they feel they can 
contribute. I see that a lot. Again, I keep going back to simple examples. You'd think it would be a simple proposition to say to people, come and help us do science. People like science. But actually, people are scared of science. People are, are scared of the proposition that they can do science. That's not how we're taught it at school. Science is done by important people in uh, ivory towers and, and lamps with bubbling test tubes. So just the idea that you can do that is is very tricky. And I think what we try to do at Zooniverse is provide the simplest possible experience that's still science. So can you count penguins? If you can count penguins, you can do science on the Zooniverse. And then you can start to think of yourself as an actor in a complex social collective intelligence experiment. But first, I want you to count penguins, because otherwise we're going to exclude all the people who don't already feel they're acting. I think a lot about the example of the water supply in Flint, Michigan, which was... um, contaminated for many years with in, with lead pipes. And there there were people doing citizen science projects on the ground. There were people testing water quality. The community uh, found out in this remarkable story themselves what was going on and, and, and worked, but nothing changed because the people lacked agency. And so I think it's very easy in this stuff to talk about uh, an integrated future where we'll all spend five minutes of our collective intelligence and then we'll fix democracy. But the, the, I, we're way, way down at the beginning of this, where we're building the simplest possible tools. And, 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 and I don't know where it will go, but I know there's a lot of steps left. I agree with that. But I think this is exactly the point that we are making at the centre as well at Nesta about designing, how do we design these systems so that actually other p- people are encouraged to participate as well. And it's not about incentivizing, but like, what's the kind of right way to do this so that loads of questions right there and I agree it's still really early stages it's really you know first steps and we're still trying to figure out how the best way to do it this is but I think this is the key point it's like it's really crucial that we design those collective intelligence system in a way um, so that they are actually beneficial and make a difference and many of these democracy projects for example they combine online and offline so it's not purely online and I think this is also a really important point about collective intelligence or maybe a bit of like a unique characteristic even that these systems use the systems use technologies but not for the sake of using technology but because they know they can actually make a difference to a certain problem they're trying to solve um which has been identified beforehand so these are like kind of the design aspects we yeah. are referring to Gregory what, do, what are your thoughts on this well I think what what Chris brought up is key which is agency and you know so having a, a better tool um, isn't intrinsically going to solve problems without the users of that tool having agency. And that's a, that's a really interesting, almost philosophical question that I think is really important and at the root of the conversation, which is how does this intersection of different forms of intelligence and sort of the weaving of these forms of intelligence together um, refer back to the the growth of sort of personal and collective agency in service to you know health for instance or in service to the health of our biosphere our ecosystem and you know that's where the design creating as much uh, focusing on design that creates both projects that are built to um, engage with i th- i think problems that are um, dynamic challenges that 
everyone everywhere is facing and having some sort of pathway for users to um, sort of have a way of engaging with the, the very core of how the project is being designed, how the information is being used is really important. And, you know, part of that, of course, is open source tooling. But I think also it comes back to how we design in, in sort of in essence, the user interface so that people, um, people can have an experience of growing agency, not just being sort of passive, either sort of consumers of an experience where you're just mm, having a superficial relationship. Um, and this is all pretty, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a labyrinth for sure. So I don't know that I have a clear answer. But and what, what's interesting thought. about when you frame it like that is that often a solution that's proposed at this point in this conversation is that what we do is we build exciting games that people can participate in. And in playing the game, you can do science or solve the ecosystem problem or whatever else or, or, or whatever else. But I think one of the reasons that I find that very awkward is that what you're doing there is obscuring everything that we've just talked about, about understanding how you're interacting with collective intelligence and, and sort of almost just sort of giving people a, a free piece of candy uh, to, to go away. So it's much more interesting when you're down in, in, in the depths of this and saying, look, let, let's do something together. What do you want to do? But doing that is really hard. Um, and, and that's why it's fun. It's fun. It's hard and fun. And the, like just to reference back to there's a relationship, I think, between sort of a threshold we cross between volunteer and professional. And there's a threshold that, that exists between engagement in sort of uh, ways like gaming, gamifying things that maybe actually in decrease agency where they create some sort of like intrinsic or, or sorry, sorry, extrinsic sort of clickbait, you know, kind of just, uh, you know, biochemical Pavlovian experience for users where they're just kind of clicking away and they don't really, they're not really building agency through their engagement. We're just sort of using something, some capacity they have for pattern recognition to do something for that on a continuum to engaging people in some sort of dynamic community participatory design, which is hard and could take many, many years and the outcomes are really uncertain and you don't get any work done until <laughs> way into the project. And all of these things, it's, they're just, um, there's a lot of complexity there to, to unpack. And I think there's probably different contexts in, in which different levels of engagement are appropriate. Thanks for listening to Future Curious. If you liked what you heard, please do share the podcast and rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us grow our audience. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or visit nesta.org.uk forward slash futurecurious to find out more and check out the other episodes in the series. Thank you and stay curious. Future Curious is a Chalk and Blade production. The producers were Ruth Barnes, Laura Sheeter, and Lily Ames. Original music is by Jed Flood. <laughs>